Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. This Sunday was set aside to be an opportunity for you to to perhaps ask some questions as to the, the series of studies we've had over these past Sundays looking at the foundations for the faith. I have to say I haven't been overwhelmed by questions. And I could just have stopped the service there. However, however, this past week, um, some dear saints, um, one of whom is away this weekend, but another one who's here and somebody else who's here, um, came and spoke with me and raised probably some thoughts that probably many of us had and we just didn't like to ask. You know what it's like when you're ever in a situation that people ask, you're just hoping that somebody who asks the question that you really want to ask, but you don't want to because you're embarrassed. You don't want to look as if you're being silly or whatever. Um, and so some people did, and I'm glad they did, because it's provided, it's actually going to pick up some of the thoughts that we've been having over these past Sundays. And as I've said throughout all of this, and indeed at other times as well, we do so not in isolation. We're gathered here inside this building today, and it's nice and cozy and bright, and, and we're very thankful to God for it. And other fellowships of God's people were gathered in our community and up and down our land. We, we gather together, some in very humble settings, uh, the dear folks at Bergetti United Free Church gather in, well, a wee hall, that's basically what it is. Um, other people gather in cathedrals and very impressive buildings. We gather together, but we do so in the context of we've come from the world, from the society in which we live. And surely, as we gather, we do so conscious of the challenge and of the needs of the world round about us. By the way, I just wanted to cheer you up today. I heard this morning in the radio that some of the papers are speculating, guess what, we might have an election, and guess what day, Boxing Day. (laughs) Well, we'll be off our work. (laughs) And it's a change from going to the shops. (laughs) I don't think that will happen. They're speculating, I think it's speculation. But we live in very unsettled times. We live very unsettled times within our society. We live in very unsettled times within the world. Um, People, you know, speak about, you know, the state of the world, and the Bible makes it clear that in the latter days, there will be stress and strain and all sorts of ructions taking place. And we see that being played out. We see that in the fractured state of our society. We also, unfortunately, see it also in the state of the church and the tribalism and division and false teaching. And, and, and weakness in particular of the church here in Britain and in the Western world. It's in that context, that context of the world in which we live that God's people up and down our land are gathered together today around God's Word. And as we do so, we come together as a congregation, as a people. Many of us had parents, our grandparents, or maybe now great-grandparents, who lived during the last war, and indeed the first part of the last century. And, and sometimes, and, and, and yet, not so common now, but sometimes when you speak to older people, they'll speak about that spirit, maybe not during the war, because very few people now can remember that, but certainly the period after the war, and they'll speak about the very real sense of community spirit. And my mum and mum, I remember my mum telling, in fact, I was telling this story to somebody just recently. They, when they got married in 1949, they had to go and live with an aunt an aunt who didn't like children. So it was rather unfortunate that my mum probably got pregnant on her honeymoon and, and, and had my brother. So she warned my mum that there was to be no more. 
and they were to be quiet, not cause any commotions. But she had, they lived with that because there was, because there was no housing. And she used to tell the story how the postman would go around with these brown envelopes from the, the, the county council of Lanarkshire, and they were building the houses in the Cairns scheme. And, and there was a big thing. If you got your envelope, from the, and everybody could recognize these envelopes, that meant you were, on, you were getting a house. And, and, and a mum member telling me the postman said, well, I'm delivering to across the road. Don't worry, yours is coming next week. How the postman knew how the building plans of Lanarkshire County Council were doing, I'm not very sure. But, and there was that sense of anticipation. And there was that sense of being all Jock Thompson's bairns. I was brought up in a council scheme when I was young. And there was far more sort of common. There were, yes, there always were well-to-do people. But, you know, but that's not the case in Britain today. It hasn't been the case in Britain probably since the 1980s. And the divisions of wealth and poverty, the divisions and the breakdown in that sense of community, that sense of suspicion, the retreating into one's own home and one's own life and one's own selfish concerns, all of that is part of our contemporary society. And the calling of the church to our society is the same calling as it was to the people of Israel long ago, that they are to be a light to the nations, a light to the people round about. They are to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ, of God, and of what that means, what it means to live in relationship with God. They are to be sufficiently distinctively different in order that others may see that God's way actually is the best way. There used to be an old song of that, isn't there? I probably dated now. You wouldn't sing that anymore. But there was a kid's song, God's Way is the Best Way. And that that is the calling of God's people in the past, in the New Testament times, and in the world today. You want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. And these opening verses, indeed this opening chapter. Let's read that together. This is Paul writing to Christians in Rome, to the very capital of the Roman Empire. He's writing to Christians that he's not met, he's not been able to see. Indeed, the end of the letter, he speaks about he, how he wants to go there and to see them, but for various reasons he's not been able to do it. Of course, eventually he did go to see them, but maybe not in the way that he originally thought. He went as a prisoner of Christ in chains. And there in Rome, eventually, after a period of relative freedom, uh, house arrest and probably relative freedom to be able to continue his ministry, he was martyred there as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But this is before that. He's writing to a church, and he's writing to a church in Rome that's made up largely of, of people like us, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But people who, but within that congregation, they probably were Jewish believers. And the great issue, the great issue of the New Testament, the great issues, was this division, this tribalism that existed even within the church. It was very much within contemporary society. You were a Roman citizen, or you were not. If you're a Roman citizen, then that gave you brownie points and was almost like a, you know, a pass, you know, never playing Monopoly on the board and you get that card, just a lucky dip or chance or whatever it's called, you know, and go past, go collect 200 pounds and you get out of jail free, you know, that kind of thing. Well, being a Roman citizen gave you a lot of advantages. And if you were a Roman citizen, that was, you were the, the B's and E's. The rest, well, they were just kind of slaves or non-persons as we made reference to last week. 
And into that divided society, into a very hierarchical society, a very centralized society, a society which already, in the period Paul's writing to, had the, the seed sown that would leach, eventually lead to the downfall of the Roman Empire, Paul is writing. And this is what he says. Paul, verse 1 of chapter 1, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we hear those verses, and we just read them and think, well, that's fine. But, you know, put it this way. If he was trying to win friends amongst the Roman elite, if he was trying to win friends amongst the intellectuals and the philosophers of Roman society, those who had the ear of Caesar or those who had the money to make an impact in the world round about, he wouldn't have said these things by very clearly declaring who he is and what he's about. Right away, he causes a division. Jesus said he came to cause division. People will say, peace, peace, but there'll be no peace. And Paul, by declaring what this gospel's about, is already being divisive. And you know, my friends, it's the same, the 21st century. If you were to say, maybe not to your family because they're too polite and they wouldn't want to rock the boat, but if you were in a working environment or, some, or a school environment or whatever else, and you were to say clearly what he, right away you'd be regarded as being intolerant, anti-other faiths, um, superstitious, and, and, and blinded to the wisdom and the truth of the world. That would be the case and is the case in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. He, spe he spoke about the prophets. He speaks about the Bible. He speaks about Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God. He speaks about the resurrection. He speaks about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in the Roman world, to say that Jesus was Lord was tantamount to treason. And we're living in a society today and will, as we go into the 2020s and the 2030s and, well, whatever. Our young people, I was speaking to someone who was marking the birth of their child, and uh, not in this church, and I was saying to them, it's a thought that that child may well see the 2021s appearing. That's a thought, isn't it? Hardly get around. We can hardly get into the, I still remember the millennium. I still got the fire I bought for the millennium bug, just in case, you know. Children born today, unless the Lord returns, or there's war, or some disaster, may well see 2100. And in such a world and in such a society with all the change and all the turmoil and all the confusion, right away to declare these truths and to stand by these truths, you're making a division. And many of especially older people find that very hard because that's not how we were brought up. We were all part of the one kind of, but we're not. We're not. 
Look what he says, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He's writing to a particular group of people, a people who were called out of Roman society. We've been to Rome, we visited the catacombs, some of you have done the same, and the ancient burial places, not just of Christians, be fair, but other people, but the ancient burial peoples of Christians who were buried well underground. Part of the reason that were done so, was that the only place where their bodies would get peace? In a society where there was all kinds of gods. Remember Paul went to Athens? I've fortunately been there as well, but with the Bible Society. And you can look down onto the, 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 the parkland, which is still there, that Paul looked down. And at that time, there still are the remains of all the statues and idols and all the rest. And Paul says, I can see you're a, very, you're a very religious people. You have your gods. But I'm here to declare the truth about the one true God. Well, my friends, that was the case in Rome, even more so. And you know, my friends, that's the case of Britain in 20. 2019-2020. Oh no, we don't have statues up and down our main street. We don't have areas dedicated to the god Zeus or whatever, but people have their gods, the god of materialism, the god of some philosophy, the god of self, ultimately. And people give over their lives and themselves and their careers and their understandings and their attitudes over to these things that are not the one true God. And God calls a people out from among these Gentiles, to be his people, to all in Rome, to all in Uddingston, to all in Britain, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does God do that calling? Well, he tells us in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last or from beginning to end, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel literally is dynamic. I know and so again, you know, we often lose sight of that, you know. Uh, I, I'm a wee bit naughty sometimes when we go to an airport because I say, put that bomb away. And Elizabeth says, shush. <laughs> Told you the story before, I'm sure, when I went down oh, a couple of years ago now to Robert Wainwright, to Robert's, and we had bought as a, as a gift for him, uh, uh, I bought out of the, the, the Gary and Bridge, uh, a mantle clock, a windy up mantle clock, and the pendulum revenue had been taken off, and it was in my bag, but lo and behold, did not start ticking when we went through the security. And the man actually said to me, is that a bomb now? As if I'm going to say, oh, yes, it is. You know, just, you know. You know? Maybe, maybe I look like terrorists. I don't know. But you know, my friends, in one very real sense, we are meant to be explosive. We are meant to be explosive. Our lives, our life together, and what is proclaimed by the church, I don't just mean this church, but the church, the body of Christ here in Britain, is meant to be explosive. It's meant to blow apart the so-called false philosophies. It's meant to show up the spiritual and moral bankruptcy of our contemporary society. 
It's meant to declare that the reasons why all these problems are coming apart and things are coming apart is because of this, that, and the other, the truths of God's Word revealed to us in the Scriptures. That is the impact we are meant to have. And yet, if you're like me, we tend to keep our mouths shut and our head down, a bit kind of like the bunker mentality and hope it all goes away. That's not our calling. The gospel causes an impact. It stirs things up. It provokes a response. And it divides men from men and women from women. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1. Notice we're very quickly going through that. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Does that not describe our country today? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Well, we've already spoken. That may not be the case here, but godlessness and other deities manifest themselves in other ways in our setting. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and self created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. You know, my friends, that was Paul, or rather God's indictment on pagan Roman world, on this decay on its waywardness, on its blatant breach of the law of God. And the blatant breach of the law of God is because ultimately they do not acknowledge God as God. If we lose sight of that, if we do not worship the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and might and have no other God before Him, if we don't do that, then everything else starts falling apart. That's what's wrong with Britain today. It's not Brexit. So the conservatives of the labor or anything else. It's because as a nation we've turned away from God. And we've undermined the spiritual foundations that secured our society and gave us a place of blessing. I would argue one of the reasons why we didn't get defeated in the last war. Not because we're the bees and E's, but because in our framework of our society, the things of God and certainly the commandments of God were held as vital. And the result is division. That's what God's people are called out from. He goes on specifically to mention ways in which that is seen in contemporary society. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men, received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved minds so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They 
they're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's not that everybody's running about in a depraved state. the very values, the things that lead to cohesion within a society are undermined. The family unit, trust, security, justice, truth. And we see that in the, all the different professions of our life. I remember years ago, David Clark, who of course now is down at CML, down at the Clyde Coast, speaking here years ago as an accountant, a senior accountant with a major accountancy business, just about the time of the crash, speaking about how the values and everything else that once had underpinned the banking foundation, banking business were under attack because people were greedy for more money. And we saw where that led to. That is our society, and God's people are called out from it. And you know, my friends, unless we are really willing to face up to that, to reckon with that, we'll never really understand what it is to be a Christian or the people of God. That is so radical that we're called out to be a distinctive people for himself in such a setting. Let's pause there and let's sing together a song that reminds us of what God has called us out from. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come into your freedom, gladness, and light. Jesus, I come to you.
please be seated. But you may well say, well, that's all very well. One of the criticisms I leveled against the church is, well, you think you're high and holy. You think that you're better than yourself. You're a, a little clique. You're a kind of holy huddle. You, 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 you retreat in here out of the real world, and, and, and you basically get your fix from religion. They'll tide you over for the rest of the week, anesthetize you from the challenges or responsibilities of being in the world. Well, that is not the case. Let's read on. Obviously, you understand we're just reading through very quickly and just picking up some key points. Let's read on. Romans chapter 2. Because Paul's then turning to the Christians. He's talking about the society, the Roman society, a very evident sign. I will remember a few years ago I had to preach a couple of sermons for John Faith on a Sunday evening during the summertime, looking at these verses in Romans chapter 1. And John got up at the end and thanked Bruce for he had, in a very full way, with obvious experience, expressed and explained to us depraved living. <laughs> I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment or as an insult. He got me to preach on that bit. He spoke about the grace of God later on. You know, I just spoke about the depravity of the world. But look at what he says in chapter 2. You, therefore, he says, because he's, he's aware, because he was a Jew. He is a, well, a messianic Jew still. He, you, that spirit of pride that filled them, and thought, well, we're we the bees and ease. We the, we've got it right, and all the rest of it. He says, you, therefore, that means us, who have no, who have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourselves because you who pass judgment do the same things. He's bringing the searchlight of God's truth onto God's people now. Jesus warned us against judging others lest we be judged. Pointing the finger, the point, finger points back to us. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount makes it very clear. The commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But if you have adulterous thoughts in your life, thou shalt not commit murder. But if you have murderous thoughts in your life, thou shalt not steal. But if you have covetous thoughts in your life, no one is righteous, Paul says in chapter 3. No, not one. Indeed, he says in verse 20 of chapter 3, Therefore no one be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, the commandments, we become conscious of our sin. Back in chapter 2, he goes on. Now we know that God's judgment, verse 2, against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's a call to the church to waken up. It's a call to the church to repent and come back to God. It's a call for the church to be radically renewed and to see things as they really are, not in the make-believe way that various brands of Christianity might present to us. It's a call to us to have our eyes open. He goes on to say, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be in trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace 
for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. What Paul's saying there is if you profess to be part of the people of God, it's to be seen. James later on in his letter says, faith without works is dead. There's to be a tangible demonstration of the difference that Jesus makes in our values, in our attitudes, in our mindset, in our living, in our life together as the people of God. That was Israel's failure. They did not declare the righteous things of God to the nations round about, and they ended up in Babylon. And some of us, including myself, would say that's the state of the church in Britain today, a spiritual exile, because we've lost sight of how serious it is to be God's people. But he says, to those who do persist in seeking good, in seeking glory, in seeking honor and the spiritual realities of eternity, there is that gift of life. And how can we tangibly do that? Well, we can do that by bearing witness to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. We've already spoken last Sunday, was it, about the calling of the church. So, let's turn, although we're in Romans, sorry to have to jump about, but nonetheless, let's turn back to First Peter and what we were thinking about the other Sunday and to our calling. First Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2 it is rather, sorry. And notice what he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, these verses again. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The old authorized version puts it God's peculiar people. Well, let's be honest, we're all a bit peculiar. But that's the old, but that nonetheless, the old English idea of being quite a distinctive grouping, quite distinctive gathering, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he goes on to say, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives amongst the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. One of the great failures, failures of the church of Jesus Christ in our day is that we have failed and continue to fail to be that distinctive people that God uses in a dynamic way to reveal Christ to our nation. Now, I'm speaking here generally, I'm not speaking here necessarily about this particular congregation or grouping, but I have to say, after my study leave and sabbatical, that would be the state of the church in Scotland in so many ways. And that is serious. Now, we say, well, of course it's serious, because we all want to see younger people filling up. How often in my job, at least in the past, I've kind of given up because it was so depressing, with the United Free Church, going around visiting Congregate, oh, we want to see young people. When you, exp- when you dig down and explore, why do they want to see young people? It's because they don't want to see their wee church shut. So they want to see young folk there to fill up the pews. But actually, they're not really interested in young people, are actually, in truth, sadly, so often, they're actually not interested in actually ending as an individual. We just want to see folk in our club so our club doesn't close. That's really not a good basis 
for evangelism or mission. Jesus makes it clear. So I'm afraid you're going to have to keep your hand in First Peter, flick back to John's gospel. John chapter 14, 15 rather, John chapter 15. Listen to the words of Jesus, the vine and the branches. I am the true vine, John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then moving on to verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Again, God's sovereign call and election to his people for himself. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command, you love each other. You remember last Sunday we brought out the conquerors? I hope that's the reason why some weren't here this today, because they ate them. After that, yes, that was a rather, yes, that was a bit unfortunate. Um, but afterwards, actually, James, who very helpfully, interesting enough, all you older folk at the back, you that, didn't it? But the time you get down here at the front, we were oblivious of all this. I certainly were. Um, but actually, James afterwards said he was pleased to see we were commending conquerors. And let's be honest, the point of the, the story probably got lost by that time um, with the kids. Um, but he was pleased we were commending conquerors because there's a great shot. That chestnut trees are dying off. There's a blight, even the one that is beside the church has the mite, you say, doesn't it? And is, is struggling with it. And you can see that because it goes brown early on and all the rest of it. So he was keen that we're encouraging people to plant their seeds so that, so that it would go a little conquer tree. And in turn, the little conquer tree will become a chestnut tree. And what happens when the chestnut tree grows? It starts itself to bear fruit. It bears more conquers, which can then be planted, can then be picked and planted and yet more. Well, you know, my friends, that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what it is to be fruitful. That is, in part, a large part of what it is to seek good. When Paul talks about that in Romans, it is to be fruitful for Jesus. Now, we often say, well, that means we're nice. Well, of course it means we're nice. It means the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit on Wednesday afternoon. Love, joy, peace, patience, all the rest of it. Of course that's true. But actually, in the context of what Jesus is talking about here, the vine and the branch, is talking about us being spiritually fruitful. Of being a place where seed's sown. The seed of God's Word is sown. A place where that word takes root and grows and flourishes so that in due season it too will produce seeds which will continue to do that. And as a fellowship, we have sought to be faithful to that over these past years since my predecessor's time. That's in part why we give more in order that we can employ Karen and others. We sought to see that in the wider context and the wider world to encourage younger people to go out and to serve Christ in various ways, but it also applies to us who are teachers, who are doctors, who are lawyers, who clean the streets and scrub beds or whatever else we do. It applies to all of us to be fruitful for Jesus. 
Oh, yes, we say, and rightly so, we live in the day of small things, and we thank God that Paul tells us, the Bible tells us, the angels rejoice over one son that they repent, so we find great comfort, and rightly so in that, we live in a day of small things, not great widespread revival going on in Britain. There are individual places where God has definitely worked. We're seeing people added to the faith. A lot of the growth, Bertie Commas in the church, is either amongst, I've already said this, amongst people who have come to this country from other parts of the world, or people who have already had a connection with the church who have lapsed. But there are places where people are tremendously being saved from darkness to light. And we thank God for that, but that's certainly not the case in Britain. Certainly not the case in Scotland. And not often the case, although we thank God it is the case, but not often the case in our own immediate lives are living. And yet, what does Jesus say? If we don't bear fruit, we're a branch that's fruitless and it's cut off and thrown into the fire. that leaves a very solemn challenge to the church of Jesus Christ in Britain today. And rightly so. We looked to various people to help us with that. We employed people. We have programs. We have schemes. We do various things. Franklin Graham's coming from the United States to have a night at the Hydro. I don't mean the Hydro Hotel, but the Hydro Conference Center in Glasgow and things like that. And people get rightly so enthusiastic. And these things definitely can be catalysts. And God can use these things to bring people and all the rest of it to a point of wanting to respond to the gospel. But my friends, people will only be there. People will only come in here. People only respond unless the Spirit of God is at work and unless usually there is some contact in some kind of way with the church or with people who are in the church. Cold calling, even in the best business, isn't very fruitful. And it certainly doesn't work or rarely works with the gospel. And so we all have a calling to be fruitful. And even our silence speaks volumes. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Let's stand to sing.
And to a close in a sense, I've been trying to pick up some of the threads of the questions that were asked, uh, though I'm conscious we've not plummeted the depths of the doctrine of election and predestination and whether you believe in double predestination or not, and I'm conscious we don't. Um, but nonetheless, hopefully the way which is accessible, we have touched upon some of the things and we'll continue to do that as we draw to a close. We could be left feeling very kind of, you know, and I sense that very much. That's why we sang a hymn at that point, because you could be left thinking, oh dear, but we need to say, oh dear, dear friends, complacency, confidence in self, or in a place, or in a person, or in a program, or in some scheme. dangerous because ultimately it's by God's grace some of the blessings let's do a quick journey through Romans chapter 3 we touched upon that a minute or two ago when we quoted Paul, who himself quotes from the Old Testament, there's no one righteous, not even one. When in verse 20 of chapter 3, he says, the commandments make us conscious of our sin. God's word, part of the calling of God's word, the sword of the Spirit, which the writer of Hebrews tells us is like a surgeon's knife which cuts in deep to open up so that radical surgery work can be done in our souls. Part of the work of God's word is to challenge us, to make us feel uncomfortable, to reveal things to us that we'd rather not see or think about. But, he says in verse 21, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The Old Testament is vital to our understanding of the purposes of God. This righteousness is given through faith. This right standing with God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely. We all can all stand before a holy God, just, not guilty, but just, set free. Freely, he says, by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, the means by which we can be at one with God through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's he saying there? Well, he's saying very basically, this is the best gift you could ever get. It's by God's grace. We spoke about that. We spent time on that a few weeks ago. It's a gift of God. It enables a human being who's separated from God to become at one with God. And how's it done? It's done through simply believing in what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, who believed God's promises and therefore was counted to be righteous, a Christian is someone who believed what God has said and done, takes it, holds it, accepts it, and engages with it. And that's the best blessing you could ever have. I remember many years ago, I was at a conference or an evening, actually it was a presbytery thing, way back 10, maybe, well, certainly maybe 10 years ago. 
with actually with Martin, Martin Patterson. One of the early adventures I took him on. And we went to the presbytery, a special meeting of the presbytery. And the story was recounted there of some Moravian missionaries who left Hamburg in the early part of the 19th century. Two young men who are passionate about Jesus and who desire to be fruitful for Him. And they were aware that there was a whole area of the world that was not being reached with the gospel. You know where that area of the world was? It wasn't even just geographically, because it was the Caribbean, and they weren't going on a you know, jet to holiday. They were going to set, they had sold themselves into slavery. And they were being transported on a slave ship to Jamaica or to one of the Caribbean islands, so that there, as slaves, they could bear witness to the unsearchable riches of Christ. So precious was what God had done in Jesus for them that they were desperate and did desperate things in order to make Him know. This is the greatest blessing of all. Let's read on as Paul unpackages that. Now, but don't worry, I'm getting hungry as well. In chapter 5, in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel sandals are the gospel of peace. And people read that and think, well, that means we go about and say nice things and calm everything down. No, what it means is we go about proclaiming Jesus Christ, who hopefully we remember, because it was just a few weeks ago, in Ephesians we saw that Paul tells us there that Jesus Christ is our great peacemaker peace with the Holy God, which therefore then means that we can live at peace with each other. We have peace with God, Paul tells us, Romans 5 and 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, the great riches at Christ's expense, in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely when it would die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, He goes on to amplify and explain. My friends, these are precious truths. And I have to say to my own soul, as much as anyone else, we're so often caught up with it. Most of us, anyway, have so much been brought up in the life of that atmosphere that rightly, in one sense, it's, well, just what part we believe. But these are radical truths that Britain in 2019 needs to see demonstrated and made known. These are radical truths that are dynamic and meant to make an impact on us and our lives and be explosive where we live and where we're going to penetrate the darkness and the cynicism and the weariness of our contemporary society. That's what the gospel does. It's light shining in the darkness, and the darkness neither understands it nor can overcome it. Press on to chapter 8. I tell you, this is the quickest set of Romans I've ever had. Huh? Romans 8 and verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen! When that roll is called up yonder, you'll be there. 
because of Jesus. You need not fear that day, but live in that blessed assurance that He is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And he goes on to say, and we're, we're running through this, time's running out. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. And indeed, the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body because of His Spirit who lives in you. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought you about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. This is transformational. This is radically different. And this is what shows up whether you're in Christ or not. In my heart there rings a melody of love, if by, your, by the Spirit of God this morning, even the mystery of thinking to myself, oh my goodness, getting along, time for my lunch. But if in your heart the Spirit of God is stirring you in some kind of ways, as words presented, that is confirmation that you're a believer. And if you're sitting in church this morning and it's completely strange and alien, I urge you before you leave this church that you put yourself right and get right with God. Because out there, there's a destiny of hell. But with Christ, there's a hope of glory. Christ in you. And as we conclude these verses in verse 28, and we know that in all things, in chapter 8, works, works for the good of those who love and not that all things are good. Jesus called us that we were to take up our cross and follow Him. Do you think going to the cross was good? Do you think Jesus thought, oh great, I'm going to be crucified tomorrow? Of course not. The way of Jesus is challenging, and our contemporary society will increasingly become challenging. Those who are coming to faith, those who are nurturing the faith, are perhaps going to face a very, very difficult world. Why should we think we're any different from anywhere else in the world? More martyrs for the faith have died this past century than the previous 19. So it's not easy to be a follower of Jesus. But God uses all these things. He works for good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God, for you, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Notice time and again, as we looked at these verses a few weeks ago, it's what He does. It's what God has said and what God has done. Believe His promises claim His word. We're going to be facing an election where no doubt our political leaders are going to make all sorts of promises, and the vast majority of people in the country are not going to believe many of them. But when God says what He says, He means it, and has proved it true through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What then shall we say in response to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, 
who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I don't know about you, but that's pretty radical. That's pretty dynamic. That's pretty earth-shattering. That's pretty amazing. And that is what God has done for his people. So I say to my own soul as much as to anyone else, let's start living as if we believe it. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.